the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, an interesting controversy at Calvin University. We're going to discuss that. And then we're joined by Glenn Packiam, the author of a new book called The Resilient Pastor. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Thursday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us again on a Thursday afternoon. Aubrey, winter's back. It's raining. It's 40. It's I, I was thinking that this morning. I'm like, kids, sorry, spring's over. I went <laughs> so, so depressing. I checked on my phone to go, what, what do I need to wear today? And I'm like, oh, like a heavy sweater. <laughs> I'm going for like that. Like mittens so. and a hat. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's getting people ready for spring break next week so that is what's yes, working that's right for people. that's right uh, that's i hope right. that you're doing well today if you've missed any of the shows this week podcast wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate review uh online 1160hope.com and facebook twitter instagram where you can find the social media water cooler we're going to do that later in the show today uh, yo you're excited Can't wait for you're that. ready to go so we're going to talk about what you guys have shared with us Online, But before we do that, Aubrey, I just found this story uh, that I was reading uh, okay. really interesting. It was over at Religion News, and the title just says this, Fallout over LGBTQ spouses at Calvin University captures broader evangelical divide. A same-sex mm. wedding led the university to split with its longtime research center over Christian T- uh, teaching on sexuality. So the story basically goes like this. Uh, a Calvin professor officiated a wedding last fall over an LGBTQ staffer at a campus-based research center, putting both of them in violation of campus policy. And uh, the way they I did see. it was instead of firing or whatever, they spun this research center off. But now the controversy has really uh, come to play. And uh, as you read the article, Aubrey, um, I really here's what I wrestled with. OK, because a lot of the quotes in the article are kind of like, um, you know, uh, why is Calvin this or they need to be more inclusive or they need to be this. Yeah. And their provost, who I'm going to got to lay all my cards on the table, the provost, he's a new provost there who is quoted throughout this article, is a former college roommate of mine who's been on this show named Noah Tolley. <laughs> Uh, so Noah and I are it's friends. Wild. He basically is quoted in here going like, listen, uh, we're part of a denomination. And essentially, I'm going to put yeah. words in his mouth. You know who we are when you sign on to right. be here. And, and I right. really kind of resonated with that, Aubrey. I feel like there's a lot of posturing these days, whether it be at Christian colleges or at churches. Uh, they should be this. They should be that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are you at Calvin or why are you at you know this church? Yeah. or Why are you here? D- yeah. I-, I feel like that we are entering into or, or in a culture right now where churches 
uh, Christian higher education, whatever else, are just going to need to continue to draw their lines and say, this is who we are. But people are going to need to go, hey, that's I understand that going in. Does that make sense? It makes total sense to me. I think that's what I I sort of initially bristled bristled, uh, as I read this article, too, because I thought, you're at Calvin, so you know you're going against a longstanding uh, tradition and even, like, their regulations for staffers, leaders, etc. at Calvin. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing this more and more online. People are complaining about their churches because their churches aren't, you know, open and affirming or inclusive when it comes to LGBTQ. And certainly there's a word for churches have to get a lot better at this. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, you can't expect churches to be more welcoming, but go against what they believe is like their historical Christian sexual ethic. Like I just, and like you said, there is this part of me that's like, don't complain about it publicly or, or, or find a different church. And maybe that's harsh. Maybe that's like my own privilege. Like, but you know who Calvin is. It'd be like doing the same no. thing at Wheaton College. You know who Wheaton is. Be it, do this like if a pastor at our church were. You know who we are as a church. Like so. Don't so leave the institution if you feel like it's wrong and it's right. not letting you be you. That's fair. But don't expect the entire institution to go against what they believe are their like sexual boundaries biblically. Yeah, so Noah totally. he said this again, he's provost there. He said, Calvin is an institution of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, and our positions and policies policies are intended to follow its doctrines. We don't follow the doctrines of the church because we have to. We follow the doctrines of the church because we believe that's the right thing to do. He went on to say, mm. joining a community or institution almost always means inheriting positions and submitting to rules made by others, even if we don't agree with all the rules. Wouldn't make those rules ourselves or want to change the rules. This need to live within a doctrinal framework and set of rules we don't make is heightened in a confessional institution. Colleges mm. and universities aren't the only places where this happens, but they're great places for students to grapple with that reality. I, I appreciate what he had to say there. And I don't know, yeah. like, I, I, I think I increasingly feel this. I hear of people getting into churches. There was one particular person that did this at our church. You get into churches, you're like, I'm going to go in there and change them. And there are right. certainly things that need to be discussed. Like, I get Absolutely. it. No yes. church is like, this is what we are 100% of the time over everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but it would be, let me take you. You feel strongly uh, about an egalitarian position, right, on women in ministry. Yeah, yeah. It would be unfair of you to take a job at a strong complementarian church with the reasoning going in to change it. Uh, Absolutely. If I did it, I would know I am submitting myself to the authority, to that authority. I may not agree, but I'm going to submit intentionally. Like that would have to be my posture or it would be wrong of me to take on that position. A hundred percent. Yeah. And go ahead, Brian. I I just feel like we live in a day of activism now where I, I think Noah's right here at some point. You you got to know what you're signing up for when you get into it. And if you don't agree with them, then don't go. Yeah. I used to struggle with this. Maybe you right. did too. I used to struggle with this at Wheaton. When you and I were at Wheaton, we had to sign a, a, a covenant, right? We called the it pledge. the pledge. Yeah. And there were right. very, to many of my college friends, there were met, these felt like strict rules around drinking, around yeah. premarital sex, around yeah. back yeah. then even LGBTQ stuff, all of this. 
dancing po- back then. Oh, sorry, I missed. I, I buried the headline there. Yes, around dancing. <laughs> Footloose back then. What was the old saying at Wheaton? Right, they, they, uh, sex leads to dancing. Right, was the uh, was the problem. <laughs> so, uh, but my point to my friends at Wheaton and other places was like, if they really had like struggled with it and they were really mad about it, I always thought to myself, why'd you go to Wheaton? Yeah. Why yeah. do you go yeah. here? When do we know when there's activism? Like, when do we try to change things, Aubrey, versus like, hey, this is what I signed up for by coming to this church, coming to this college, coming to this company? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is a pl- there is absolutely a place for activism. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I believe wholeheartedly that God would call us to activism, especially if it's anti-biblical. There's it and is. I think yep. I think what the the headline shows us here over at Religion News Network is that we, we are very divided right now in evangelical Christianity about what like biblical sexual ethics are. And I would say uh, for many of us on one side we would say no like the traditional family we're not saying we wouldn't love accept welcome etc sure. but bottom line god's god's plan for sexuality is the traditional family mm-hmm. the other side would say no 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 that's closed minded that's uh, divisive that's judgmental that's condemning that's not welcoming that's not loving even and so when you're that divided on that who that I mean you don't even agree on what reality that's is right. biblically that's a hard place to be but ultimately to answer your question Brian I would say if it's not biblical and you feel very strongly you've done your research you've done your work you've looked at the ecumenical church stance over history and you can come to the place where like no I have a different feeling about this conviction about this and there's a community of Christians that are with me then yeah fight Agreed. you know but but also know that if you're like you said, I just think you need to know what you're getting into mm-hmm. and then and then Live be willing to leave if you need to. Yes, yeah. Or be or willing leave. to leave if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe and again, maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's callous. Cause I I do think you can have discussion and nuance mm-hmm. and and really meaningful community over these disagreements without having to leave. But then to just completely like subordinate if you're a leader, completely like um rebel against that, that's a yep. different conversation. Yeah. And I would end with this institutions churches you and i help lead churches but also colleges and other stuff uh the this cuts both ways you need to be clear about what you are and that's a, true a Brian. lot of churches yeah. a lot of colleges try to pretend that there's something that they're not to try to look yeah. welcoming or look this yeah be clear true. with who you are and set mm-hmm. the ground rules and where where do we have hard fences where don't we and yeah. and then stick to them and allow the chips to fall where they may. So I found this story yeah. intriguing because I think we're going to read more stories like this. I think you're right, Brian. Aubrey, you and I talk a lot about pastoring on this show. We're yes, both we pastors. Do. And uh, particularly, uh, how do we lead now in a world that's changing mm-hmm. so much? COVID, politics, everything, just church attendance in general. So much going on. With that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined by the Associate Senior Pastor at New Life Church in Colorado. Springs, uh, the author of a new book that we're excited to discuss called The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. His name is Glenn Packiam. Glenn, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Good to be with you, Brian and Aubrey. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely so our pleasure. So, uh, Glenn, let's let our audience get to know you a little bit. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more? And in your introduction, why this book now? Why'd you write this book? 
I'm originally from Malaysia. It's where I grew up. I uh, lived there most of my childhood, uh, but I've lived in Colorado Springs now for 22 years. I've worked at the same church, New Life Church, began my time at New Life in the worship ministry, and then about 15 you know, years ago or so, uh, switched into a teaching pastoral role. We launched our first um, off-site congregation about 10 years ago called New Life Downtown. Nice. That's where I cool. preach regularly and lead that team. It's a little bit like a parish model rather than a multi-campus sort of model, you know. Um, but then I also serve as associate senior pastor, which means I get to kind of hang out, coach, consult, oversee some of our other off-site congregations. Mm-hmm. This book was it came out of a conversation that I had with David Kinneman uh, a little over two years ago, actually before the pandemic. Hmm. And David oh, wow. is the president. Yeah, David is the president of Barna, and he said, man, let's, let's, uh, we want to partner together on a book for uh, pastors to navigate kind of a changing world. And naively, I said, sure, that sounds <laughs> awesome, you know. <laughs> and I've, I've done my, you know, my doctoral research, that research model was very much this blend of situational analysis with theological mm. reflection. So I thought this will be great. Well, like a few weeks later, the pandemic broke out. <laughs> and I, I thought either the Lord tricked me or he knew, you know, wow. this is sort of a, for such wow. a time as this kind of thing. Uh, but it was great. So I, I, I basically outline in the book eight challenges facing the pastor and the church, four for the pastor as an individual, mm-hmm. four for the church mm-hmm. as a whole. And then we designed research. I got to work with their amazing team. This research went out uh, late 2020, uh, two pastors, hundreds and hundreds of pastors. But then we also got to ask some questions of the, in the, of the general population, cool. you know, to find out changing attitudes toward the church and pastors mm-hmm. and all of that. I did some focus groups with pastors in the U.S., Canada and the UK. Hmm. But the goal, you know, the goal, guys, was to pair this insight with wisdom. And the wisdom side of it comes from scripture, comes from church history. Because hmm. I think even even though there's a unique element to these challenges, there's also an evergreenness to these, these hmm. challenges, you know. Um, I, You know, one of the unfortunate parts of our job, Glenn, is that Brian and I are constantly covering story after story, especially recently in the Chicago area, of what feels like just some major pastoral failings. And and they're heartbreaking, of course, to watch and hear about. And of course, because of that, you talked about like how is the world perceiving the church? It seems like there's a lot of disillusionment, distrust towards pastors. I know that's something that you talk about in the book. What word do you have for pastors like how do you keep leading when folks around you don't even know if they like believe that the church should exist anymore (laughs) well you're right aubrey it it is a bleak picture in fact in in some of our new research to the general population you know one of the questions was do you consider a pastor to be a trustworthy source of Mm -hmm. wisdom and you know only four percent of non-christians said yes definitely and maybe that's not surprising an additional 18 percent or so said yes somewhat but what was even more disheartening i think was the number among christians Mm so um, Christians altogether, 71% of Christians said either yes, somewhat, or yes, definitely, which I chuckle a little bit because I think, yeah, on any given weekend, there's a third of our people sitting in the congregation saying, yeah, we all yeah. feel that. But, you know, the, on, on a sober note, Aubrey, I, I think the, the loss of credibility is due to a mishandling of our authority. Mm. Um, and I think our first response ought not to be, how can we regain this? I think our first response ought to be to say, 
Jesus put the searchlight in my own soul. You know, I, I work at a church that 15 and a half years ago, we had a, a pretty public scandal of the founding senior pastor mm-hmm. here. And uh, and I remember that, that season and that moment. It's not about kind of the searchlight on someone else's uh, sin, but really kind of the spotlight on your own mm-hmm. soul. And to say, Lord, where, where, where have I mishandled power? And I say power specifically because... I think credibility is the result of the good and proper use of power, the good and proper Mm. stewardship of power. In the Old Testament, you see Saul kind of exercising power rashly, making rash vows and all of this stuff. And then his his credibility sort of wanes. And I think for us as pastors, we've kind of mistaken the source of our authority. We think that the source of our authority is the size of our churches or the size of our denominations or the Instagram following that we have or whatever. Listen, that's not it. The the source of our credibility is Jesus Amen. himself, which means which means we need time with him. We need to have deep roots in our yeah. intimacy with him. But it also means our stewardship of power needs to look like Jesus's use of mm. power, i.e., washing people's mm. feet. So oh, good. Oh, man. Absolutely. So, Glenn, let me piggyback on something you just said. Uh, Aubrey and I discussed, there was an article Christianity Today the other day uh, that basically said church attendance has plateaued, people returning to church. And, yeah. and you know, they, they surmise that even a third of your church isn't coming back since the pandemic. Yeah. And, and I think most pastors I know, myself included, like that weighs so heavily right now. Mm-hmm. Because we, if we're honest, we do get a lot of our... Um, pride from how many people come to our church and all that. So could you continue speaking to the pastors, particularly who are struggling with, I look out and the people I used to minister to and love just aren't here anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm with you in that. I mean, and I'm, and I'm with, you know, pastors who are experiencing that. We're experiencing a, a very, very similar thing. And yeah, there is kind of a vanity piece of it, but there's also a missional concern mm-hmm. with that, right? I mean, we, are, we do want to make disciples and we do want, uh, you know, one of the measures of discipleship is a sense of belonging and commitment to the people of yeah. God. So if they're, if they're not returning, gosh, that is a concerning marker of maybe an absence of, of discipleship or formation even in their own lives. So I, I think one of the things that's highlighted for me is we've got to help people understand the purpose, the why. Why are we gathering? Mm. A, a lot of people have focused on the let's make it easier. And so therefore, you know, the online thing. And listen, I do understand this is a very important subject. Accessibility for people who are who are vulnerable or struggling. We have to continue this sort of hybrid approach which with digital um, access into our worship services. Yeah. But I think for the person who is able, we've got to help them uh, recognize if you are able to gather in person, why does that matter? What is the unique kind of New Testament reason for the church gathering in person? And and maybe maybe this is sort of like you know all all of all that we've done. We're kind of reaping what we've sowed. Maybe you know, mm-hmm. like in, in my world, non denominational world, we've sort of said, "Come because this is exciting," or "Come because this is yeah. you know." Instead of a, a better to use the theological word, it, it's a, we need a better ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Like what is is the church if the church is the family and the family needs a home then when and 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 to use another image if the church is the temple that that ephesians image then that means that god is present with the church in worship 
in a way that is different from and possibly even in a more concentrated way than he is present in in Mm. other ways in the world. So it's not that I live in Colorado. It's not that God won't join you on your hike and God won't be with you on your backyard, you know, fire pit. It's not that. It's that there's a special quality to the way he's present when the people of God gather in worship. We've got to help people Mm. understand that. Oh, it's so good. Mm. I feel like you need to teach a class and we just sit under you. I guess that's why why you wrote the book. That's why you wrote the book. Yeah. The book, yes. Um, again, the title of the book is The Resilient Pastor. I, I want to go someplace. I know we don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but I think this is so important. This is something Brian and I talk a lot about on the show. I know your book approaches this topic as well. How can pastors face all of the disunity that seems to be presented mm-hmm. by what we're, who a whole lot of nationalism and racism that we're seeing in the church yeah. right now? Well, thanks for naming that. And you're right. It is that is one of the challenges. Um, I, I mentioned there's eight and four for the pastor, four for the church. We've talked about one for the pastor credibility. We've talked about one for the church already. Why do we gather and worship? But one of the other ones I, I t- wrestle with in the book is that challenge of unity and specifically the current threats to unity in the American church. Uh, that infection of nationalism and then our disagreement even on what racism yeah. is. Is it systemic? Is it structural? Is it individual? You know. And I I think one of the places we have to begin with is with this posture of humility. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, this mindset of humility. And then from that place of humility, I think we then have to be able to move towards listening to other people. Sandra Van Opstel, an author, I think she's in the Chicago Mm -hmm. area as well. uh, She wrote a book a few years ago called Next Worship, and she outlines these three, three key postures that I think are so important, and I mentioned them in my chapter. The first is the posture of hospitality, where we're basically saying, you are welcome Mm. here. You don't have to agree with me. We don't have to vote the same way. We don't have to have the same experience of America. You know, you are welcome here. But then we have to move from hospitality to solidarity. Mm. And solidarity Mm. is the willingness to say, I'll stand with you. And this was the thing that got tested in in the summer of 2020, is African Americans were saying, this is our pain. This is our experience. And people who didn't have that experience said, no, it's not. That's not real. Mm -hmm. And, And it's one thing to say, you are welcome in my house, hospitality, but solidarity says, can I stand with you even if your pain is not Mm. my pain? So that's Mm. solidarity. And then the third thing is moving towards mutuality, where we're actually, we're we're not doing the sort of patronizing thing of like big church helping small church, rich people helping poor people, whatever. No, But there's a genuine mutuality where we start to say, goodness gracious, unity in the spirit looks like a one anotherness, the kind of one another verses that show up over and over again in the New Testament. So good. Uh, Glenn, thank you for that. Uh, as Aubrey said, I just want to mm-hmm. keep going. But but here's what we want to do. You got a taste of it now, people. Mm-hmm. Go get the book. It's called The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. Uh, Glenn Packiam is the author. You mentioned a podcast. Tell us real fast about your podcast as well. Well, I partnered with Barna to launch several initiatives. You mentioned the book. We've also launched The Resilient Pastor podcast, which uh, new episodes air every two weeks. Uh, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify wherever you get your podcast, just The Resilient Pastor. And we're also doing some city roundtables, The Resilient Pastor City Roundtables, which will be in several cities this year uh, and later to come this fall, The Resilient Pastor Cohort. All of that is on barna.com slash The Resilient Pastor. 
Excellent. Yeah, I, I, you at least got the two of us to subscribe to the <laughs> We're podcast. In. I can tell you that much. So, uh, Glenn, thank you again. Glenn Packy, I'm the, uh, the book is called The Resilient Pastor. Go out and get it. Glenn, thanks so much for spending time with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Aubrey. We'd love to stay connected with you, our audience out there. You can connect with us on our, on, uh, online at 1160hope.com, at our, po- at our podcast. Uh, but, Aubrey, somewhere where we get to interact with people is in social media. Facebook, That's Twitter, right. Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Aubrey will soon be starting the Common Good TikTok where you'll see her dance and such. But uh, but other than that, that's a great place for us to be able to interact with you. And something we've been doing as of late is something we like to call the social media water cooler. And it's a, a, we post a question and then we just let you argue and respond and, and give us your thoughts. And so, Aubrey... Uh, you posted one this week, and then I do want to talk about, we also posted about a conversation we had earlier in the week, but let's go to the water cooler. Uh, tell okay. us about the question and some of the responses. Yes. Okay. So we asked people if they could work remotely anywhere in the world. The so world. we kept it pretty large. Yeah. The world for the summer, where would you work? And the answers were, were pretty fun. They get your brain going. Um, Okay, somebody said, so many places would be awesome. I would probably pick Norway oh. or New Zealand. Okay. See, okay. but here's the uh, problem. Let me, let me just, before we, because I yeah, think go we're going to hear go a lot of people going far away. Yeah. What they're not taking into account here is you're still working and you're doing you still it remotely. Have to work. So picture yes. if you and I were doing a show. Okay. Yes. And I and the station said to me, you can do it from anywhere you want. And I said, New Zealand, mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing the show at like three in the morning or like time oh, change so you, is going to become a problem here unless you're okay, only, okay. unless we're saying the remote work is completely solitary. Like you don't have to depend on other people at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly more fun to think about it being totally solitary because then you can go wherever. Yes. But let's say there are some boundaries. So maybe you want to stay in the t- same time zone. For me, I think if we were doing the show remotely. I'd want to hit like. Like maybe the those panhandle beaches in Florida. So like mm. we could record while looking at the ocean and then go out to the ocean. Right. Or like spend the morning at the ocean and then do our evening show while looking over the That's something nice. like that. That And then, you know, pop over to Disney World on the weekends. I, obviously. I am not going to take it personally that you basically just said you wish you could do it solitary. <laughs> 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 You're like ideally solitary if we were doing the show. So uh, ideally, I don't have to deal with you. Exactly. Every day. Exactly. What else? <laughs> what are some of the other ones? Okay, so uh, here's a really good one. Brian Fromm's backyard, where he could bring me sandwiches and cool drinks. I believe that was your sister-in-law who reported that. That's not going to happen. Yeah, few people picked Hawaii. That makes a lot of sense. Hawaii's a good one. It does. We got a few. We got a few Italians that follow me, and they uh, they all said Italy. Um, this one was a good one. Someone said, are my kids coming? That changes my answer. <laughs> this one shocked me. Anchorage, Alaska. This person said it's beautiful in the summer. I was going to say that's thought, a summer okay, one. Summer, because you said summer. summer. Uh, my guess yeah. is if you said year round, that person would not say Anchorage, Alaska, because you got to deal with the winter. So. Um, okay, here's a good one. Dan, uh, Dan Ehrman, who works here at the station, he has top five. You ready? Because he knows the show. Yeah, he knows the show. Edinburgh, Scotland. Nice. Colorado. Mm. I think my husband would say Colorado. Santorini, Cinque Terre, and Bar Harbor. Um, and then this one's funny. 
someone said Antarctica just to say I did. Just to say that I did. <laughs> I think for me, especially if we're saying summertime, uh, I'm going to be very similar to you. You went down to the panhandle of Florida. I am going to go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. The Outer Banks came up on this quite a bit, too. Because you're going to be out on the beach. It's the summer, yeah. so it's warm. I wouldn't want to do yeah. that if it was like wintertime because it doesn't get really warm there. I feel like uh, this gets back to what kind of person are you, right? Are you a lake river person? Are you a mm. woods person? Are you a mountain person? Good. Are good you an point. ocean person? I'm always an ocean person. What I always struggle with, I just gave like the list. Are you ocean, lake, this, that? None yeah. Of, none of those match where we live now. <laughs> like, what do we say now? Are you a, are you a, <laughs> that- are you a strip mall <laughs> suburban person? <laughs> are you a boring Midwestern person? Are you just yeah, looking? I, I want to stay in. Are you looking to <laughs> maximize ahead. the number of Olive Gardens and chilies that you could go to? <laughs> Do you want to go to a whole bunch of Targets and Hobby Lobbies? Then this is the place for you. Okay, somebody did put Prince Edward Island, which reminded me, Brian. I was scheduled to lead a retreat in Prince Edward Island, and then a little thing called COVID came up oh. and. Came canceled the retreat and i've never been able to go to prince edward island i feel very sad for myself is on prince that. edward island the one off of seattle like off of washington or am i in the completely wrong part of the of the area here so i feel a little bit embarrassed you're asking me this because i actually think it's the other it's the other part of canada the other side oh. but i might be totally wrong about that i right, give us some more and i'm going to do the the beautiful all, Googling. I, all I know is it's where anne of green gables was set so that's why i have it in my mind okay this was a good one this person's got uh, Australia, Cape Town, South Africa, New South Wales. So they're going to like a totally different part of the country. I like that. Somebody posted a picture of um, Fiji and it looks heavenly. He posted like, a picture. Like the workplace is like these gorgeous like uh, ocean side little, uh, you know, canopies that you're sitting under. That looks fantastic. Um other people put Bora Bora. This one was nice. funny. Bora Bora or New York City. Okay, <laughs> they're basically the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so uh, those are pretty good. Uh, Kauai. That's another Hawaii. We got another Italy. So it seems like, yeah, like you said, it's really. Oh, oh. Here's a unique one. My country of heritage. Poland. Okay, I'm not sure I want to be there right now. Not right now. Uh, Definitely not right now. But. But that would be interesting. One of the takeaways is we didn't get a lot of like Elmhurst or like, you know, like even <laughs> Chicago, to Texas. No, yeah, people yeah. are not doing that. So uh, to answer your question, you were correct. Prince Edward Island is one of Eastern Canada's maritime provinces off New yes. Brunswick and Nova Scotia in the yes. Gulf of St. Lawrence. It looks yes. wonderful. Hey, be- I know things. While we're talking about Facebook and such, let me quickly say I posted the other day after our fascinating conversation oh, right, about right. dreams. And about the the frequency of people having dreams in which their teeth fall out, and I said, I think they're I think they're punking me. I don't think this is true. I don't think <laughs> Aubrey. I posted that, and I got thirty five comments, almost exclusively of people like, "I have that dream all the time. I have that dream all the time." A couple people were like, "I've never heard of it," but over and over again, I have that dream. And some people said that they've done the research and that it is tied to anxiety. Times of anxiety yeah. in your life, you have the dream. So all it means is I am not an anxious person. I think that's what we That we've doesn't learned. surprise me about you. You're a pretty laid back guy in general. So I, yeah, I, I, uh, I could see that, but I will say that is, it's usually when I have a big speaking event or okay. something is due 
I pro- I think I'm probably grinding my teeth at night, so that has something to do with it. So yes, it is a stress dream for sure for me. All righty. Well, thanks for joining us at the social media water cooler. Watch for those on Facebook and Twitter uh, here in the coming weeks. Please weigh in and we will read yours on the air. Brian, uh, you and I are big fans of Derwin Gray. He's been on the show before. He's mm-hmm. a great follow on Twitter. Do you know my, my, uh, my story about how I met Derwin Gray? Hmm. I told you this. Yeah, nah, you did at one point, but I want to hear it again. People should know Derwin Gray planted a big church, written a bunch of books, but he's also a former NFL player. So he was. Yes, he's a he's a former NFL player, has a massive church in one of the Carolinas. I always forget which Carolina he's in. South Carolina, I believe. But we'll look that up. It's called Transformation Church. And he started it along with his wife. But yeah, he, he came to know Christ while in the NFL with the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, has since after retirement, he is now a a dynamic pastor, speaker, writing books. So but yes, it sounds like you've got a story, though. I do want to hear it. Yes, I have a very funny story. about. So so all that to say, Derwin Gray, he would never say this, but you and I can say this. He's a like kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Yes. So uh, (laughs) I was at an airport in Colorado Springs. And I hear this man and woman talking about church planting. I had just come back from speaking at an exponential event. And so I just turned to them and said, hey, this is so none of my business. But are you guys church planters? Because I just got back from this church planting event. And they're like, oh, yeah, we are church planters. We have a little church in South Carolina or wherever it is. And I'm just chatting them up like, (laughs) here we are, two church planters together. And then later that day, I go look him up on Twitter and I'm like, Oh, no. Oh, you didn't know it right then? Oh, no. I had no idea. He was so humble. He and his wife, Vicky, were so kind and generous, but never once did they let me know, like, they're the experts in church planting. Yeah. Like, he's, like, headlining Exponential. I'm speaking at the regional events. You know what I mean? Like, so they were so humble, but that was my, that's sort of my foot in my mouth. I want to uh, become a big deal. Story. Like, I want to become a big deal. So in those moments, <laughs> I'd be much less humble. Like, much less Philippians, too. Like, you know, I would, I would have looked at you and just been like... I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, like, wait, you don't know who I am? I'm Derwin Gray. Here's my bio. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> kind of a big deal. No, he was a very, very humble guy. I actually had a class with his wife at Wheaton. She's very, very... So they're the real deal, yes, all, they are. all that yes. to say. And he has a book out called How to Heal Our Racial Divide, where he talks about... I mean, his church is a multi-ethnic church, so they're really built on yes. racial reconciliation and what they call blessed discipleship and he tells this story that i think is a very common story and here's what he says he says while i was sipping coffee and working on my book how to heal our racial divide an older white gentleman in the coffee shop asked me what i was doing when i told him i was writing a book on how to heal the racial divide he responded that there was no racial divide in america and that he didn't see people's color color I said, brother, why not? God made me this way and he made you the way you are. He wants you to appreciate my beautiful color just as he wants me to appreciate your beautiful color. And then Derwin Gray goes on to say, in recognizing our different colors and cultures, we are acknowledging our equality in Christ as children of Abraham. We take our colors and our ethnicities with us in new heaven and new earth. He's quoting Revelation 7, 9 there. And then he goes on to talk about colorblind ideology. And what he says is that a lot of us, and I think this is very true, a lot of folks in the American church really believe it's 
virtuous and good to say I don't see color. That's, I think, a phrase that a lot of us yeah. use for a very long time. Here's what he says. I get the sentiment behind that statement, but it's actually flawed and damaging. And here's why it's flawed, because God created our different ethnicities and colors. He's quoting Acts 17 there. And he says, every human being bears the image of God, and each ethnicity is a mirror that reflects God's image back to the world. To be blind to the beauty in our diverse colors and cultures is to miss an aspect of God's creative genius. And then lastly, he says, I have found white brothers and sisters who say they don't see color are often those whose color has not been a historic disadvantage for them or their ancestors. And I think that's actually the money quote right there, Mm. because I find that Kevin and I have a lot of conversations about race and racial reconciliation and racial division because our church is a multi-ethnic church as well. And so uh, on a much smaller scale than Derwin Gray's church. But we have found that people who say they don't see color it or that there's no racism in America anymore is often because that hasn't been their experience. Like mm-hmm. they have not experienced racism. They have not experienced um, being uh, uh, dismissed or even abused because of the color of their skin. And so it's like a. It's, it is a blindness, re- truly, because you're not seeing the experience of people of color and how much they've had to walk through. Um, so we'll move on, Brian, in just a minute to talk about color-blessed discipleship. But what do you just, in general, yeah. think about that? Yeah, I, it's it's challenging, because I do think when people say, I don't see color, I think it com- it is done from a very good place. Like, I think, for the most part, usually it's done from a place of going, you know what, I'm, I... I I at least want to see everybody as equal. And, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, to harken back to even what Martin Luther King said, right? Like, I, I, I want, I long for a day where we're judged on the content of our character, not the color of our skin. I think when I hear people, and mm-hmm. I've said it before, I think when we say, I don't see color, we're trying to say, I don't see you as different. I don't see you as, I don't see us as divided. I see us as unified, you know? Yeah. But what I love in the conversation of somebody like Derwin Gray is going, listen, this is how God, God created us differently. And we can celebrate that, whether it be black and white, whether it be black and Asian, white and Asian, or whether it be man and woman or whatever else it be. We need to celebrate the differences because God created this, this beautiful differences, this, this, uh, and he, yes, has called us to be unified, but nowhere in scripture does it say, uh, don't see somebody as how God created them. And so right, uh, right. what we what the goal is and what Derwin's getting at in this book is to say, no, let's still see ourselves as black and white man and woman, mm-hmm. whatever. But how do we mm-hmm. how do we bridge the, how how do we bridge the divisions that that has usually historically caused? And instead, how do yeah. we be unified in our differences, recognizing in the book of Revelation, it tells us for history, we're, or for our future is going to be with every tongue, tribe, and nation. It doesn't say there will no mm-hmm. longer be tongue, tribes, and nations. Right. It says right. we will be worshiping in every tongue, tribe, and nation. So how do we become a right. picture of that now? But I, I do want to say that yeah. I think it comes from a good heart. But also a misguided one, kind of a lack of understanding. I think, yeah, that misguided piece is really important to note. I, I will say, it's funny you say that about Revelation, because we have had people at our church say, why do you talk about race so much? Doesn't the Bible say we'll all be one race? And Kevin's like, no, actually, Revelation you know, 7 talks about how 
each tribe, each tongue, each nationality will be together. And that's going to be amazing. Like together in our united diversity, we are going to reflect God to each other in a beautiful, beautiful way. And so it's important that we talk about these things now. Here's what uh, Derwin goes on to say. So he wants to move people instead of to color blindness, to color blessed discipleship. And what he says is color blessed disciples understand that ethnic reconciliation is intrinsic to the gospel of Jesus. Gone are the days of believing Jesus only accomplished vertical, vertical reconciliation. The reconciliation of Jesus is vertical and horizontal. You cannot have one without the other. It's not a fad or a trend. Rather, it is the center of the gospel. And I'll just end with this. It will. This is Derwin Gray. It will take a discipleship revolution to heal the racial divide that is ravaging the church. It will take a gospel-soaked, color-blessed disciples. I believe you can be such a person. Mm. You have been called, chosen, and empowered by the Holy Spirit for such a time as this. I think that's a good, that's a good word, word for all one. of us. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've been Brian's life coach. I've designated myself Thank as you. Brian's life coach. <laughs> yes. yes. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I'm glad it can bless you, Brian. I appreciate it. And it's, I've decided put that on your that business Brian, card. Put it on your business card. I will. Brian Fromm's <laughs> life coach. Uh, I've decided that Brian actually needs to be a, like, start a ministry of some kind for the small church pastor or the small church ministry leader because. Brian is very passionate uh, about small church pastors being encouraged because they can easily feel so discouraged. One, because of the nature of just being a small church pastor. Two, because of the fact that most of the conferences, resourcing, etc., are done by big church pastors. And so it can make you feel like unless you're a big church pastor, you don't have a lot of value. So I think there's a unique uh, niche for Brian to fill. So I am, as his life coach, I am uh, encouraging him, empowering him to do a little uh, special segment on the show each and every week called All Ministry Matters with Brian. Because there's so much money in this, too. I mean, it's a it is just a goldmine waiting to happen. (laughs) This is practically cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah, it's right all here. about the money. <laughs> it's all about it's all about yeah, the money. Yeah. Okay, so Brian, um, think about you know we talked earlier this week about how churches are pretty much post COVID at seventy percent mm-hmm. of what they were, and that's we're here to stay at that level. So we're not going back to our pre COVID numbers. We are where we are, and especially for a smaller church, that could feel pretty discouraging as you look out and there are a lot of empty chairs in a space that used to feel pretty full, doesn't feel quite as full. Do you have some encouragement for a pastor out there who's feeling a little discouraged because of that? Yeah, and uh, my first encouragement would be this. I am right there with you. Like, I'm preaching to less people than I used to preach to, right? And you can easily take that upon yourself as like there's something wrong with me. And so uh, the old saying, misery loves company, I, I would say just be reminded we're all going through this right now. We are all dealing with it, and uh, and that's okay. This is going to sound like a cheesy church answer to Aubrey, but I'm going to give it anyway because it's a cheesy church answer because Let's it's it. true. Uh, Jesus dealt with mm. Jesus primarily dealt with 12 people during his ministry. Wow. Um, That's good. Yes, Brian. he had large crowds at other times, but he he invest. 
Think about that. The savior of the world had three years to do whatever it was he was going to do of ministry. And he invested deeply <laughs> into 12, into 12 people. Now there are other, there are women around, there are other mm. people, but he said, these are the 12 yeah, closest. Yeah. I am just going to pour into them. Yeah. And they then become the ones upon which the early church is built. And so if yeah. if if dealing if shooting for depth rather than breadth was good enough for the savior of the world i think that we need to reclaim the value of it because you know in our days it's nope the best people have thousands of people jesus could have had thousands of people and he chose not to why i think mm-hmm. we need to wrestle with why is that the case and so again it's a little bit of a cliche cheesy answer to be like well jesus didn't have a big church but i think there's power in that like i think uh, yeah. that that is helpful and the last thing i would say is lean into the opportunity that this provides mm. right now mm. in my church i can know if i choose to i can know everybody who's there and yeah. people are there because they want that connection as well. I have it's not outside the realm of my power to to email, phone call everybody who's coming in the space. You know, it might take me a month to get through that's the big. people. But yeah. if I had a church of multiple thousands of people, that's not possible. That has to get farmed out to mm. other people. And so I think mm. one of the things that I think is a blessing of being in a smaller ministry is the opportunity to know the people that you've been called the shepherd, like deeply know them. Yeah, that's good. Brian. And to be able mm-hmm. to know where their struggles are, what they do, what their, uh, you know, their family situation, whatever else it might be, and to speak into them. And so, you know, I understand bigger organizations that has to get you know, there has to be systems and structures to make sure people don't fall through the cracks. But I think uh, when you're leading a small church, you could be much more proactive. Hey, let's have coffee. Hey, let's go out. Hey, shoot an email. What's going on? And so I would lean into that. I would lean into that ability right now and just go, okay, let's let's get to know the people really well instead of lamenting the people who aren't there um, and lamenting or instead of just seeing it as this herd of people uh, you and I were joking the other day. Uh, there, there's a pastor who will remain uh, anonymous to this, but we saw on Twitter uh, his church had a new member class on Sunday, this past <laughs> Sunday, and he posted a selfie with right, not just right. a new member class, of the new members. And he posted a selfie, and my fir- yes. my first thought was, there might be more new members in his church this month than our members in my church. <laughs> than in my whole church. Yes, and, absolutely. And so, yeah, absolutely. And so how do we not grow discouraged in that? It is, mm. hey, what what does what my situation, what does it lend to that maybe he can't do? Uh, there's going to come a point That's where good, he doesn't Brian. know all those people. Yeah. He just has That's to good. trust that they're yeah. being known by other people. I have the ability to know the people. And so let's lean into that. So uh, uh, let me turn I it on that. you. That's you, so good. You and I are in very yeah. similar sized churches. So uh, mm-hmm, we are. What, what would be a word of encouragement you would give as my life coach and somebody who understands? So, <laughs> you know, I think I I do think about, so you talked about Jesus really investing in the 12 so that they could, you know, go out and multiply his ministry. I also think about, you know, when Jesus talked about, you know, the different parables, like going after the one lost sheep or going after that lost coin, like 
Jesus was so focused on caring for the one yep. also, right? And so I think that's something that I need to remember in ministry is that even if the impact that God allows me to make ministers to one person, mm-hmm. well, hallelujah, mm-hmm. like that's enough. That's enough. But we we hear all of the these voices from both within Christian and without Christian culture, that's like more is better, more is better. Mm-hmm. Keep, go- keep Well, what if we, what if we really invested in the one or, or by one, I mean the few that God has given us yeah. in our churches and really, like you said, shepherded them in a way that was meaningful and personal. Um, Man, there w- wouldn't that, don't you think that would be enough just to bless the father? Uh, like it doesn't have to be more than that. Yes. There was a famous pastor and I'm going to forget who it was a famous author years ago, decades ago. And he told this story where, um, somebody in his congregation came up kind of like, like with like a look of concern, uh, so, and okay. so pastor, aren't you worried that there were only a hundred people here today? Uh, and he said, he looked at this person and said, worried? I can't believe there's a hundred people that want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> and he just <laughs> went off like that. And it was this idea of like, just yeah. shepherd who you have, not who you wish you had mm. or who you're mm. trying to have. Shepherd who mm. you have. Still dream. Still try to reach people. Of course. But, but shepherd who you have. Be faithful with the few. And if God chooses to yeah. bring all these people to your church, praise God. But if he doesn't, then do be faithful with what you have. Yeah, so good. Such a good word for all of us. I think especially, Brian, in this day and age when we're seeing so many like big name headlining Mm -hmm. pastors fall, uh, this is a good word to stay faithful where God has you. Even if your ministry feels, quote unquote, small to the rest of the world, it is not small to God. So that's all Ministry Matters with Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you are with us today. It's the end of today's show. The end of every show. We love to bring you something that's encouraging or inspiring or something that'll just put a smile on your face. Brian, I've been thinking a lot about the topic of human flourishing and what it means to actually flourish in life or to Mm. live fully to experience like vibrancy in your life. So you're not just, you know, the old cliche, you're not just surviving, you're actually thriving. And Harvard University actually has a, I guess, a scale of measuring. They call it our flourishing measure. Oh, wow. It's based on the human flourishing program. Mm-hmm. And basically they've developed this measurement approach to human flourishing. And they're based around five central domains. Here's what they are. Happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. They say each of these is nearly universally desired, and each constitutes an end in and of itself. Mm. So here's the questions that they ask on this uh, flourishing scale. For happiness and life satisfaction, number one, overall, how satisfied are you with life as a whole these days? And you can answer all the way from zero to not satisfied, 10 completely satisfied. So how satisfied with you are you with life Mm -hmm. as a whole these days? Second question, in general, how happy or unhappy do you usually feel? Then they move on to domain two, mental and physical health. In general, how would you rate your physical health? How would you rate your overall mental health? Domain three, meaning and purpose. Overall, to what extent do you feel the things you do in your life are worthwhile? 
Um, six, I understand my purpose in life, strongly agree or disagree. Move on to domain four, character and virtue. I always act to promote good in all circumstances, even in difficult and challenging situations. Number eight, I am always able to give up some happiness now for greater happiness later. Mm. Then they move on to close relationships. Domain five, I am content with my friendship and relationships. My relationships are as I want, as satisfying as I would want them to be. And then the final domain, financial and material stability. How often do you worry about being able to meet normal monthly living expenses? And how often do you worry about safety, food, or housing? And then, of course, depending on how you answer that helps uh, you understand where you right. are in your capacity for human flourishing. Isn't that interesting, it's helpful. Brian? It is helpful. And and what strikes me in reading that, Aubrey, is not it's not one-to-one kind of correlation, but there's a lot of biblical concepts in here. Jesus speaks to a lot of these yes. things about human flourishing, about happiness and satisfaction, about these other things. Mm-hmm. The, again, we made this point earlier in the show, like our theology matters now. It doesn't just matter in the future. Like yes. I, we would argue and human flourishing doesn't mean a life without trouble. We have to be careful about that. But we would have to we would argue that human flourishing, the key to human flourishing is a growing relationship with Jesus. And we can answer it along some of yep. these lines. Like, how, what does it mean for happiness, for this, for that? Uh, Harvard isn't looking mm-hmm. to get to that spot. They're not looking to get that. But it, it just reminds right. me again, right. in the day-to-day desires of purpose and meaning that we have, our theology of Jesus absolutely matters. And he speaks into this. Yes. I know. That that was very fascinating to me, reading that, too, because especially when they said that these are uh, nearly universal mm-hmm. human longings. And then what we find is that the gospel meets all of those longings. And so this was wild to me thinking, like, there is something that even, you know, Harvard University can recognize in humanity that is really longing for the things of God, mm. community, shalom, flourishing. And so that I, I was really, really blown away and impressed by that. And I also just think it's helpful if you're struggling for any of us, especially coming out of the last couple years to really evaluate, like, are you okay? And if you're not like, perhaps if, if those scores are low enough, I'm sure some of us are in the middle Mm -hmm. to higher range, you know, depending on the day, depending on the season. (laughs) But if you're consistently in that lower range, it might be time to, you know, reach out and get some help, go see a therapist, talk to your doctor. So I think in an, in another sense, it's talk to your pastor, talk to your small group leader. Like it's a good resource, I think, to be able to ask yourself those questions. I thought they were really, really interesting. Okay, so connected to that, Brian, um, I was thinking about, okay, so let's say you want to experience more flourishing in life. What do you do? Is there Are there any practical steps? And so that sort of led me on an internet deep dive over to a website called daringtolivefully.com. They have an article called 60 Lists to Make When You Need a Mood Lift. So I would say <laughs> when you want to feel like you're flourishing, here are some lists that you can make. You and I love a good list. Love them. We are fans, fans of lists. This, uh, I love this article because it is a list of lists, but they actually have some rules about writing lists. So let me tell you some of the rules and then I'll dive into some of the lists. Okay. They say, make your list as long or as short as necessary. Add details if you like, or if you'd rather make each item on your list one word long. Share your list with your others or keep them to yourself. (laughs) Use a notebook and pen or uh, keep them on your laptop. Write in your mother tongue or try using a second language you were taught in school. 
If you're the creative type, draw your lists, light a candle when you write your lists, listen to Bach Cello Suite Number 1 as you write, and then ignore some of the lists I suggest. Uh, ignore some of these ideas I just suggested. <laughs> Come up with your own list ideas. I thought that was really, really fun. Okay, so let me let me uh, share a few lists with you, Brian, and see if there's one that would would lift your mood in particular. Okay. okay? Yep. List your favorite books. Mm. List the books you want to read. List your favorite movies. List the adventures you've been on. List the adventures you want to go on. List the cities or countries you've been to. List your favorite songs. List your favorite people. List people who have helped you. List your favorite or best childhood memories. List all of the things you know how to do well. List the things you love as a kid. List your favorite meals or desserts. Now, there, look, there are like 30 more right, lists, right, so I right. don't need to read them all. But did did any of those, you're like, if I did this, this would definitely lift my spirits. You know what I think? There's one coming later, actually, I read ahead of you, in which it lists, oh, okay. lists the goals that you have. So Ooh. it is a future looking for me when I see when I kind of take some time to dream and and write things down and be like this is what I want to accomplish. I think that sort of thing inspires me towards like, oh, I, mm. I'm trying to accomplish some stuff, even if it's like weed the garden. Like I'm not talking about big things. I'm talking about even yeah. like, but also fun stuff like as a family, let's do this. Setting some goals when I feel like um things are without purpose like we're just kind of going day to day without mm-hmm. much we're trying to accomplish i could get yeah. kind of eh, like what's up what you know what's the purpose of life or whatever so that was one i also like the one they wrote here like what are some of your favorite things you've done as a family right to remember oh that's a good one to remember yeah. oftentimes this isn't a list but oftentimes i'll go back through the pictures on my phone just like when I have a da- like when I'm just got a, a yeah. downtime, and I'll be like, "Oh, I'm, that trip was so much fun. Oh, that was so much." And I'll just get, it'll put a smile on my face. I'm like, "Okay, this is yeah. good." So yeah. those jumped out to me. That's a really good one. I think the one the one that this seems almost it's starting to become cliche, but I've never done it, so like I probably need to. I tend to do it as I journal in the morning, but I I don't do it consistently, and that's list a hundred things you're grateful for. Mm. I feel like that would just put them put you in a good mood no matter what. Yeah. And then I the the other one I like is list um the small things that like improve your day or the small things, the simple pleasures that make you happy. Mm-hmm. That's the language mm-hmm. that they use. So I think sometimes because I get into like, I need to go on vacation or it needs to be this big. I need a new house. Well, if I could just focus on the simple things that give me pleasure, that would bring a lot more joy and like flourishing throughout my day that's good. as well. Yes. So anyway, that's just a fun little li- list about lists. Love lists. I, you can't go wrong with mm-hmm. that. Thanks. I love lists. That's right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.